Welcome to the Trust Corner. Zero Trust architecture is becoming increasingly important in today's digital ecosystem. This architecture assumes that all network traffic is potentially malicious and requires verification before access is granted. As the threat landscape continues to evolve and companies are limited by economic constraints, how can Zero Trust help secure organizations and their data? Our guest today is Brad Arkin, Senior Vice President and Chief Security and Trust Officer at Cisco. Brad leads Cisco's security and trust organization, whose core mission is to ensure Cisco meets its security and privacy obligation to customers, regulators, employees, and stakeholders. He serves as an advisory board member of both the Silicon Valley Global Innovation and Sands Capital Ventures industry organizations, and he sits on the program committee for the RSA Executive Security Action Forum. Welcome to the Trust Corner, Brad. Thank you. In previous episodes, we've interviewed chief trust officers from different industries and different priorities. At SAP, like Cisco, security and trust are closely related. Can you tell us how security and trust are intertwined and how your role came to be? Yeah, so I joined Cisco in March, 2020. And by coincidence, it was the first day of mandatory work from home. And so for two years, I never actually met anybody in person. But when I joined, uh, the, the job that I stepped into was called Chief Security and Trust Officer. And this is a role that had been created about 10 years earlier. Um, and so I inherited the structure that, that was existing at the time. And, and I went back and asked some people for the history lesson of how this came to be. And basically what happened was, uh, you know, in the 2000s, early 2010s, Cisco was doing a lot of work to integrate security into the products we're building and the back office IT, security operations, that kind of thing. And more and more customers were asking questions that basically you could summarize as saying, show your work, convince us you're doing the right thing. Don't just do it in silence in the background. And so figuring out how do you take what had previously been a pure back office activity and then give visibility to the external audiences that evolved into what became at Cisco, the trust office. And so, so this is an outward facing organization that's there to answer questions and provide insights into things that used to be pure back office activities, but they're relevant for people who care about the products they're buying from Cisco, the services they rely on, or if Cisco is a partner or a vendor, making sure that as a company that we're doing the right things in IT security to manage our own operations. And so it was really figuring out how do we get that information external to external audiences that they needed to solve that problem. And so the trust office and changing what used to be a CSO, Chief Security Officer role into security and trust. Um, and so then since I came, things continue to evolve. And so that outward facing conversation is still really important. And we feel like if anything, it's accelerating and how important it is, but, but it started over 10 years ago. Fascinating. I'm sure there's a lot of parallels we could exchange notes on as well. Um, you are the first Chief Security and Trust Officer we have hosted on this podcast. So thank you for sharing the evolution and Cisco's trust journey. As you know, trust, especially in a cloud environment is crucial. What are the most important factors for establishing trust in a security program? Yeah, and for us, you know, Cisco does a lot of different things. So we've got cloud services we do for customers. We've got on-prem products that are physical hardware that we build and ship to our customers. And then we've also got um, 
you know, software and services. And so software that will build and then ship and you can download it and run it in your environment. And so for each of these, the kind of things that could go wrong and the thing that the person who relies on that service or product or offering that they care about is going to be a little bit different. And so more than anything else, I think it comes down to communication and making sure that we understand what are the requirements and you'll have explicit requirements that might be in an RFP, but then you'll have soft requirements, which if they're violated, they'll be angry, but they may not think to explicitly say out loud. And so trying to figure out what are the requirements that we need to meet? And then how do we provide the right evidence that we meet those requirements? And so for cloud services, a lot of times, the kind of requirements are things like you need to talk to, or you need to have FedRAMP, or you need to have you know ENS in Spain or C5 in Germany. And so that's pretty easy because there is somewhere a standard that's documented with a bunch of controls we can go and implement those controls. We get a third-party auditor to come verify. And then we get the certificate that says we comply with it. And so we can hang that up in the elevator and prove that we comply with that thing. So that's like pretty easy. When it's uh, on-prem software or um, you know, hardware products, sometimes they'll say, well, we want to see Chroma criteria certification, or they'll say, um, we want to know what your return operations uh, capabilities are if there's an outage. But, but a lot of other times they just don't want bad things to happen. And if you ask them to articulate, well, what does a bad thing mean? Like, well, you know, bad stuff. We just don't want it to happen. And so you need to back out of that. Like, well, what exactly do we have to do to prevent these things from happening? And what does bad stuff mean? Um, and so more than anything else, if you get the communication right, both on the inbound, so we know what they care about, and then on the outbound that we're able to talk to and give those answers, then we could create that feeling of trust and confidence that when they're using our stuff, that's gonna deliver what they need. Very interesting. I'm sure our listeners very much appreciate your insights. For my next question, I'd like to talk about private and public collaboration. A few episodes ago, we had the opportunity to discuss the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy with a member of the Department of Justice, who highlighted the importance of the collaboration between public and private sectors, basically to create a more secure and resilient digital environment. How do you collaborate with other organizations and government agencies to share threat intelligence and a coordinated response? Yeah, so when we're talking about the trust conversation that happens between us and our customers, uh, you know, governments around the world are big customers of Cisco. And so we spend a lot of time working with these different groups in order to understand what do they care about. And sometimes it's the CISO for US federal agency. And so they're a very clear like customer. Sometimes it might be more of a regulatory entity or somebody who's a stakeholder, but they may not be the person who's signing the purchase order. And so in each of these cases, what Cisco has set up is basically the same way a lot of companies have government relations or government affairs. We have people that are, their full-time job is to partner with um, different groups out there in the world. And so it might be the US federal government or it might be you know some other group uh, like NCSC in the UK or BSI in Germany. And we've got people around the world that focus on making sure that we have the right relationships with these stakeholders and that we understand where their priorities are, how that influences the work that we're doing. And then we can also share the things that we think are important in order to shape the discussion. Um, and so with this team that's part of the trust office, we're able to get out there in the world, be involved in these conversations, and then try to steer things in a direction that's gonna be most productive. And so an example here is we saw an executive order come out last year talking about software build materials and attestation to secure software development frameworks. Um, the executive order left a lot of details 
to be decided later. And so we had the chance to work with people that are involved in turning those uh, executive order requirements into concrete, very specific details, and then give them feedback about, well, what are you trying to achieve? And if you care about this, you should do it this way. But if you care about something else, there's a different approach. And so it's really a conversation that happens over time and making sure that we're there for those discussions is a way that we can help to make sure that we're doing the work on our side to drive that trust in a positive direction. Perfect. I agree. Collaboration is key for companies like Cisco and SAP, and, and it's impossible to protect ourselves without the help from both industry and government. Um, I want to pause for a second and, and take a moment to ask you about one of your achievements at Cisco. You've led Cisco's global zero trust architecture deployment. Can you describe what zero trust is and what led to the decision to implement this architecture? Yeah. So when I joined Cisco in 2020, uh, we kind of had a uh, a mix and match approach where certain SaaS services you could connect to directly from your laptop. And if you're working from home, for example, you wouldn't need to be on VPN. And then we had other things which were on-prem at Cisco or maybe a third-party SaaS service, but you could only connect to it if you first connected to the corporate VPN. And, uh, and, and this led to all sorts of inelegant outcomes where the way that we would verify who the human was and the um, the identity piece of it might be inconsistent, whether you're on VPN or off. Um, the other thing is that when you're on VPN, you can talk to the service you need to access, but you can then connect to so many more IP addresses for reasons that might not be clear what you're trying to do. And so it just creates a much more challenging security environment for us to manage. And so the, the real trick here is that Cisco sells the tools and capabilities to make it easy for our customers to better manage these net flows. And, and so I said, hey guys, let's let's figure this out and make the Cisco corporate environment a showcase environment um, where we have really clear paths of communication and consistency across how we identify you know, the device and the user whenever they're connected to something. And so because everything needs a fancy marketing label, we took this term zero trust. And so the idea is that whenever somebody initiates a connection to a service, we don't assume any level of trust um, until we're able to verify for ourselves that it's the right device, the device is in the right posture, there's the right human in possession of the device. And there's a bunch of other ambient information we can collect about time of day, physical location, which network are they coming from? You know, and when I'm not traveling at 9 a.m. on Monday, I'm sitting here at my house connecting in to corporate services. And that's a really consistent situation, same IP address, same device, same time zone, same geolocation. And so we can use that information to make good decisions because suddenly instead of a Mac in California, if it's a Windows machine in Nigeria, maybe that's not me, or maybe I'm on vacation, I lost my laptop, you know, one or the other. But it's something that we can bring further inspection to in order to make good decisions. And so what we ended up doing is moving the corporate services that people use most into what we call the zero trust network architecture. And so when I connect to these things, we now have the same device posture verification, the same authentication of the end user, and we get a lot of good user experience benefits out of this. So you authenticate once per day instead of lots of different times throughout the day. Um, and then the network connections get routed directly to the service. And so instead of being on VPN, where you can connect to a lot of different IP addresses, you're only connecting directly to the one thing you need to target. And so then we've had situations where 
um, you know, somebody's kid installed a dodgy Minecraft plugin on their laptop. And so the device is compromised. We detected this during the posture check. Um, but then the question is, well, when did the compromise occur? And what did they have access to before we booted them off the network and then worked to remediate the machine? And because they were only using Zero Trust Network, we knew exactly what they connected to. And we had all of the NetFlow to describe what those connections looked like. And so it was a very simple question to answer. Whereas if they'd been sitting physically in the corporate network at an office or connected to VPN from home, it would have been a much more complicated set of analysis. Um, and so, so that's what the Zero Trust Network is doing. And like anything, what we deployed in 2020 is evolving today. And so it's constantly changing. We're always using new toys to make it better for our users. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure we do device posture checking, robust identity verification for the human in possession of the device. And we want to make it a simple, easy experience for the users with as little friction as possible. Very interesting. Thank you for breaking that down in, in an understandable way for us. I want to go back and continue with the topic of creating a secure digital environment and collaboration. What do you think are the greatest cyber threats for critical, critical infrastructure organizations like Cisco? And how can they successfully prepare for them? Yeah, so for us, we are really paying attention to bad things that are happening to other organizations um, because that's usually the roadmap for things that we worry about in our own environment. And so we had the SolarWinds attack that happened a couple of years ago. And the idea that someone might target Cisco build machines is something that we spend a lot of energy to raise the security assurance level we have for those build environments. Um, so that's one example of something that has happened elsewhere. And we want to make sure that we do everything we can to improve the security assurance of our current environment. The next thing that we're worried about are attacks targeting end users. And so these would be like employees or contractors um, and using an attack against one individual to gain access to a corporate resource and then to get into the environment and move around laterally. And so we've talked publicly about an event where this was attempted against Cisco last summer, summer of 2022. And so we published a bunch of information about the technical details of what happened there. And the work that we need to do to raise the security assurance level for the endpoint devices. Some of it, we talked about the zero trust network. Um, it's a lot about the posture checking and making sure that we have trusted known hardware that's connecting into our corporate services. Um, and so, and then also the chance to figure out how can we rewrite the user experience so that the user can't be scammed over the phone into giving out secret credentials. And so we're moving towards a passwordless model where the connections that are made from the corporate device to a corporate service are based on a cryptographic secret stored in a security enclave that's embedded, you know, in a YubiKey or Touch ID for Mac or Windows Hello for a Windows device. And so when we do that, even if you get a person on the phone and you successfully scam them into trying to work against Cisco's interests, uh, they can't give up the secret because it's in hardware on the device and there's no way they can get it to cough it up. And so that's a very different situation than someone typing in their password to the wrong website, you know, that's a scam website, or people that are reading out six-digit codes over the phone or something. Um, so that, that's another kind of threat vector uh, that is very common out there today. And all these companies you read about getting ransomware, that's what we need to do in order to make sure that it can't happen here at Cisco. And so there's always more work to do to tighten up the chances um, to improve our security assurance levels for those devices. And I think the final thing is really, given all the different threats we have, how do we convey to our stakeholders 
accurate insights into what we're actually doing right now. And this gets back to the trust conversation. So, you know, if the customer needs to see FedRAMP before they can buy, do we have FedRAMP for the right services? If they need to see a SOC 2 statement or they want to see ISO 27001 or any of the other alphabet soup of different certifications out there, are we doing the work and can we answer those questions for our customers and give them the information they need so they feel comfortable? Um, and if we have the right controls in place, then we know that we're going to have the right defenses to deal with the types of threats that we're all planning to defend against. Perfect. I think there's some of the same cyber threats on our radar as well. So thank you for sharing with our audience. My last question, I'd like to ask something about as something that SAP and the Chief Trust Office is very passionate about, workforce development. Data shows there's a significant gap in the availability of skilled cybersecurity workers. To help close this gap, SAP is fostering relationships with colleges and universities across the country. We are developing inter-university events and creating cybersecurity programs to foster the future talent pipeline. How is Cisco helping to bridge the gap for the cybersecurity workforce? Yeah, so the, when I arrived at Cisco, I was really impressed with how many long-tenured folks we had on the team. And so there's a lot of people that have been here, you know, someone who's been here 10 years might still be the new guy. Uh, and so we had a lot of people who really had a real depth of knowledge. And where we needed to steer the team was to make sure that we had a nice pyramid of talent um, at different layers of job experience. And so it's great to have seasoned, really senior folks, but you also need some earlier career folks to balance things out uh, because they're the ones who are going to grow into, you know, the middle management and the more senior technical roles over time. And so one of the things that we've always had at Cisco, which I inherited and was thrilled to understand, is this really robust internship program. And so we're now working to uh, build on that internship program and expand it so that we're doing more, um, even cohort hiring. And so we may go to a university and say, hey, we want to hire six, eight, 10 people. And we don't even know exactly what jobs they're going to do when they start nine months later, because a lot of times when people make offers in the fall for a summer graduation. And, but we know that we want to get a block of people to come in and then we'll figure it out later. And because the team is big enough, we always have spots opening up in different places. And so through the internship program, a lot of times we're able to get people, we even have some interns that are in high school still, uh, but we get people frequently after freshman or sophomore year of college. And so then they don't just do one internship and then we make them an offer to start full-time, but they'll do an internship. They might come back next year. They might come back for a third internship before they then finally come to start as a full-time employee. And so we're able to really give them a taste of the kind of problems we're solving here at Cisco and then help work with them to understand, you know, what courses might be more fun for them to get. Because if you take these courses, you'll be ready to do this project next summer. And so that's at sort of the individual level. We also work with a bunch of different universities, um, you know, and some of them are informal, some are more formal, like advisory councils or steering committees and giving feedback on the kind of curricula that is gonna best prepare the students to solve the kind of problems that we need help with. And computer security and software security, product security are all really sexy topics right now. And so people feel like if they can better prepare their students today in these areas, there's gonna be a lot of jobs out there for them to go do in the future. And so giving them feedback about these are the raw skills and building blocks we need people to have so they can be most impactful when they show up to do the real work with us. Um, figuring out what is the right curriculum to develop in order to help grow that skill set. Um, so that, that's like some of what we're doing. And it's, it's really fun because the energy we get from the new college grads and from the interns 
Um, you know, it's, it's just another boring Monday at work, but when you've got a bunch of interns around, everything's always exciting. Um, so they, they bring a lot of energy that's really fun. So that's, that's part of how we get in there to help shape that workforce of the future. Thank you so much, Brad, for joining us today and sharing your insights on zero trust, the importance of collaborating with the public sector, and what companies can do to close the cybersecurity workforce gap. I really enjoyed our conversation. This is great. Thank you.